Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast in each installment, myself and the guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest today is Barbara Archer. Barbara is a managing director and partner at High Tower in St. Louis. Barbara earned her BS and MBA degrees from the University of Dayton and completed the Wharton Executive Education Program on Retirement Risk and the Harvard Business School Executive Education course Women on Boards, succeeding as a corporate director. (laughs) She holds designations as a certified financial planner, chartered life underwriter, accredited estate planner, and certified family business specialist. She is a member and past president of the St. Louis chapter of the Financial Planning Association and a member and past board committee chair of the Estate Planning Council. Thanks so much for joining us, Barbara. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me, David. So this week, our discussion starts with Lily Pulitzer. Lily was an entrepreneur, fashion designer, and American socialite. She founded Lily Pulitzer Incorporated, which produces clothing and other such wares featuring bright, colorful floral prints. Because of the brand's popularity with a certain segment of high society, most notably the Kennedys, Vanderbilts, and Whitney's, she was deemed the queen of prep. Lily and her husband, Peter, who is, yes, the grandson of Joseph Pulitzer, owned several Florida orange groves, and with produce from these, she opened a fruit juice stand in Palm Beach. While working at the stand, she found that squeezing juice made a mess of her clothes, and so seeking to camouflage the stains, she designed a sleeveless shift dress made of bright, bright, colorful printed cotton. She discovered that customers loved her dress, so she made more to sell at the stand, and eventually she was selling more dresses than juice, and decided to focus on designing and selling what had become known as her lilies. From there, she launched her own brand, which is still thriving today, after a few hiccups, and even after her death from cancer in 1993. However, Lily Pulitzer is not actually the subject of today's show. That's Susie Zusek. You see, although Pulitzer's orange juice stand origin story is well known, a key detail was generally left out until pretty recently. The prints that made the brand so instantly recognizable were actually painted almost entirely by one woman in Key West, an artist named Susie Zusek. Now, Zusek died in relative obscurity in 2011, and her archive was presumed lost, thrown away when the original Lily Pulitzer Company filed for bankruptcy in 1984. That is, until it was unearthed in the subflooring of a warehouse a few years ago. Zusek was fairly well known in her day, but the dissolution of the Lily Pulitzer Company in the 80s separated the archive from Pulitzer's trademark name. When the brand was reconstituted in the 90s by an investor group, None of Zusak's original designs were carried forward. The Lily Pulitzer name is now owned by a holding company that also controls Tommy Bahama. 
Now, normally this is the part where I wrap up the story and kick it to our guest with a more substantive question. But this week, our guest happened to play a key role in helping make the next part of the story happen. Zusek's work is currently being displayed in an exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York through January 2022. And the long and winding road from basement obscurity to posthumous recognition was spearheaded by a St. Louis lawyer named Becky Smith, who first encountered Zusek's designs while on the hunt for vintage upholstery fabric. Now, this is where Barbara comes in. Barbara, do you mind telling the audience about your relationship with Becky Smith and the role you played in this story? Oh, I'd be delighted to. I met Becky and her husband um, when they came into my office and became clients. And Becky was just a delight from the very beginning, very creative and engaged. And although she was an attorney, she had a background, excuse me, in um, both bankruptcy law and copyright law. So Becky was telling me the story about how she had met this woman named Susie Zuzak in Key West and this cockamamie story that she'd given her. And of course, she had a hard time believing it. So Becky, being the curious and interested individual that she is, she started her research. So after many years, she was able to substantiate this story as being actually true. Her research included the validation of some key issues from authenticity to copyrights to ownership and substantiation from Lily Pulitzer herself. So what happened was Becky came in one day and said, gosh, I really would like to own this group of paintings and conserve them. I said, well, we won't wouldn't want to only notice how I use we right up, right up front because as a wealth advisor, I feel like I'm sitting on the same side of the table as my clients. I said, we want to not only conserve the archive, but we want to honor this artist because here was a woman that was raised on a farm. She served in World War II. She used her VA benefits, graduated top of her class from Pratt, and then was married and moved with her husband at the time to Key West. So here was a woman that her husband leads her. She's a single mother with three kids. She has to work and she finds employment with Key West handprint fabrics as a designer. So Becky and I had this, you know, story that we're putting together in our heads about what a fabulous person this individual really was and didn't really acknowledge her own importance in a brand that was so enormously popular. And so Becky and I said, let's try and raise money. So what do you do? Families and friends, right? So obviously I was one of the investors because I believed in the story. I believed in Becky. I believed in Susie's artwork. And A few of us put in a few more dollars and we actually purchased the archive and ended up with so much more than we anticipated. So that's how we started down this path from an idea to the Cooper Hewitt, which then resulted also into a book by Rosolia Lecta about Susie Zuzak herself as the artist behind the brand. So a lot has come since 2016 when we actually purchased the archive. 
Yeah, I think it's safe to say that this is sort of exceeded uh, beyond your expectations. Um, <laughs> yes, it certainly has. I think, you know, every advisor can relate. And I think every advisor says that they want their clients to have passions and they want to know what their clients' passions are and they want to you know take part in them, even if perhaps they're not actively investing in them. But I think in practice, a lot of times that manifests itself as at the very beginning, like you said, a client kind of coming to you with a cockamamie scheme about something that seems like silly, you know, because they're, they're, it seems kind of random a lot of the times. So how are advisors, you know, how should advisors handle that, that initial conversation, right, where the client comes in with a wacky scheme and the sudden interest in something that, you know, you're, this is what you're hearing about it for the first time, and presumably what they want to do with it is going to be not inexpensive. So, so how, you know, what advice for advisors, other advisors can, that you have from your own experience, is sort of how to handle that conversation and, and try to suss out what, you know, that interest can be and whether there's actually something there. I would start with that first question of why. Why are they interested? And then you have to start going into their own values and determining, do they have the commitment? Are they willing to persevere into something that can be a long, drawn-out process? Do they understand what they're in for? Are they familiar with intellectual property or do they know the right corporate attorneys? Do they understand um, that if it would take technology or what kind of insurance or, you know, depending, and, and David, you know, we look at this obviously as an alternative investment. So there were so many little pieces that go into that in understanding, is there truly a value, which is difficult you know, it's one thing whenever it's a stamp or a coin or a car or a piece of jewelry, but people purchase art for different reasons. Some are collectors because they're investors and think they're going to make money on it in the future. Others are because of the love of the art itself or the, the artist. And what is it that drives that passion? So it's a lot of time sitting and talking. And I would say um, you cannot rush into this. Becky and I spent time off the grid, right? Not during my working hours. We'd meet for coffee or we'd meet for cocktails and we'd really hammer out what we would want to make our mission for this collection and did it make sense to input the time the attention the effort it it's a very difficult process um, i think it's easier possibly to buy an alternative investment that you can just look it up on the internet this didn't exist like that and you and i have talked to enough wealth advisors knowing that there are some relatively interesting schemes our clients can come up with. So whether it's in technology or just a, an interesting new business, we, we need to be a part of helping them make the right decisions and guiding them. So being able to work with them on business plans, understanding the risks. I have a background in reliability engineering, which helped because I did criticality designation systems and failure prevention analysis. So getting from point A to point B, what do we need to do to be successful? 
And that became very helpful in asking all of those difficult questions. And, and sometimes the answers aren't easy. And it takes a longer process of discovery. You mentioned the important question of, um, you know, is there value here? And I think, especially when you're dealing with sort of a physical, maybe a collectible, uh, a piece of art, a collection of art especially, even if you can look it up on the internet and decide and see like what it is actually in dollars and cents worth, and then it's, it's more of a process deciding whether there's value there than just comparing that number to asking price, right? There's a lot of hidden costs here. And so what are some of these, you know, that you have to identify? You're sort of expanding on, I mean, in this case, it's specifically art, but some of those hidden costs other than just sort of what is this worth versus what am I being asked to pay for it? Absolutely. Being asked what to pay for it is kind of the easy one, right? Because you can get an M&A attorney and you can get your asset purchase agreement. All of that's kind of the easy part. It's kind of um, rough to say that, but... After what we've been through, I look back on that as the easy part, <laughs> because <laughs> once we purchased it, one of the things you want to do is insure it. Well, how do you insure something for a value when you can't determine the value? We were fortunate in being able to um, find an appraiser with a very deep background in this area that was able to at least give us a rough estimate so that we could insure the property. So when you talk about the additional cost, so you need an appraiser. Because there's intellectual property on these designs, we had an intellectual property team, corporate attorneys, um, st doing the strategic plan. So that's just time. But remember, as wealth advisors, our time is our money. So we have to decide if this is a personal passion project or is this uh, billable hours to a client. In my case, it was part of my passion and part of my investment. So yeah, I think fundraising... that's really an interesting distinction to draw, too. I noticed before when you made a point of saying that I had sort of off-the-books meetings with her, right, when it was yes. time to talk about this stuff, because, you know, I think it is important if you're going to get involved with a client in sort of a business venture like this, that there be that you know, clear separation between this is advisor time and this is us as partners time. Well, thank you. And also you have to disclose that to your compliance department as well. So, <laughs> you know, we, Always a good we are still in the business. Yes. <laughs> um, so after the fundraising issue, um, you know, so we have insurance, we have legal fees. Well, what about transportation? Moving it out of the warehouse to a, now another cost, a safe art storage location. So now we're paying rent. So now we've added not only transportation and insurance and legal fees, and obviously we'll have accounting fees. Now let's layer on another cost. How about technology? In this case, we wanted to give it the highest um, availability to be able to research and go back. We have so many pieces of art that we use actually the TMS system, which is the museum system, to archive and identify each one of the pieces, which also was a little bit of a challenge when you're going back in a historical uh, methodology. We're looking at photos were looking at, Becky went to the Library of Congress, was looking through it chronologically, what 
was there might be a title. Well, at the time, they would give them three yards of fabric. And let me tell you, the Library of Congress is not keeping that fabric. So, (laughs) you know, it's tough, right? So we've got the research and there are some research costs. Then cataloging and conserving, we had to hire help for each piece to be input. Um, We saved some money in that my son is a professional photographer, so he was able to photograph each piece so that we could go back and research them. And my daughter has been in investment banking and private equity, so she could give us some ideas as well as to the importance of having this identified and cataloged. Um, How about repairs and cleaning? So is the art in the right shape? Um, We also had acetates. We had swaths of cloth in different colorways. Um, Museum, oh, reaching out, hey, let's, we now need a public relations engagement because we want to help control the story because it's about Susie Zuzak, not about Lily Pulitzer's brand, but it's about Susie. And our mission was to honor this artist, so we wanted to control that story, which means we have a PR agency. Um, The fashion and art press also. We wanted to be able to let people know that this is uncovered. It is exciting. What is out there? And you have to remember our assets currently are non-revenue producing, right, David? They're just sitting there. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So (laughs) sort of of led it actually very well into my next question here, sort of, you know, those are the costs for the most part, except for the last couple, right, of you know, just having it as an asset and just holding it. But you've right. now taken this additional step of, well, this is going into a museum. So, so what does that look like then? What is, you know, you've moved it, you've got it, you've you know, decided it's worth it to buy, but now there's this new step of this belongs in a museum. How do you even start? I don't, I don't think, I think most advisors which wouldn't even know where to begin with, okay, let's get this in a museum. Well, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't know where to start. Becky didn't know where to start. So we sat down and and had a discussion. And the good news is we have a tremendous network in St. Louis. And there are a lot of private collectors and people in fashion. And so we linked into that network. I sit on a board with a gentleman. Becky sits on the um, board of the art museum. So we had many connections. And we started having these conversations. And we were guided to the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum because it is the one place which really raises the name of Susie Zuzak. And the Smithsonian even has highlighted her in her story, and they have a collection of these, as someone to be recognized. So when you step back, you can set your sights really, really high or take the easy way out. And we chose to set our sights very, very high. And that's, that's another decision because what it means is it takes longer and it takes more work and it takes more money. So you have to make that decision up front as well. The, and deciding where you want to do it also decides who you need to know and how do you get introduced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially, you know, additional considerations here of, you know, it's a little bit more, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're really having a mission and you're trying to get, you know, Susie Zuzek's name out there and honor her in this example, you know, museums are donated thousands of pieces every year. 
And the vast majority of those pieces end up, thank you very much, into the basement. Maybe we'll show it later. Yeah. So it's, that's yes. also sort of part of this is, okay, well, not only are we picking a place that wants it, that's going to take it, but that's actually going to show it to people. Oh, and David, I certainly hope you get the opportunity to see it. It is spectacular. I was so excited. It opened on June 10th, and it'll be there through the end of the year. And it is so gorgeous and just an exciting exhibition. And we did donate pieces. And if you think about, and you and I have talked a little bit about my business and our tagline is make an investment. Well, we start with make a plan. So make a plan, make an investment, make a difference. And we make differences in people's lives, in their families, in our communities, and obviously in in philanthropic gestures. So being able to make those donations to the Smithsonian was also intrinsically rewarding to all of us. And hopefully this can be a traveling exhibit. People everywhere will be able to see this. It's a story, it's the heritage of part of our fashion history and people like me that grew up in that era. And it's very exciting when you see that it wasn't relegated to the basement, right? That it is being honored. Yeah, and we talk about leaving a legacy, and generally we're speaking a little bit more esoterically, uh, (laughs) metaphorically, (laughs) in terms of leaving a legacy. Um, But in this case, there's actually a very physical legacy that's been created here, right? This idea of, you know, you are now the caretakers um, of the Susie Zusek exhibit of these unearthed artifacts. And, you know, what happens with these in the future is sort of in you and, and Becky's and their, your descendants effectively hands. This is a responsibility that's going to be passed down. And so that, that's a really interesting aspect of this whole thing, that idea of, you know, this is the legacy. I mean, it's not often going to be as literal <laughs> as this, a physical right. legacy, but this is sort of a, an illustration of kind of what you're talking about. And you just gave me goosebumps with that. We're just <laughs> thinking of that as a legacy. Thank you for that. I appreciate that very, very much. And when we look at, you know, what could be the next steps? I mean, we've taken it into the public view now. But we do know that there will be private parties that are interested in the art and the artist. And then that's something we have to deal with in the next steps. And what about the intellectual property? Each one of these designs has a copyright. What happens to that? What's next? And that's an exciting next step. So this is an ongoing story. I'm looking forward to each chapter. So it's one of those lovely books that I don't see an end to at this point. <laughs> so yeah, I think looking, looking back on your story that you're told here, I think the big lesson here is that, you know, it takes a village, right? We talk about the importance of teams in, you know, wealth management teams and, and having other professionals as part of your network and, and actually, you know, more than just having them as part of your network, actually being willing to share the wealth and, and use them and, 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 you know, not be worried that they're going to steal your client or take some part of, of what you're asking for help with. Um, in, in your case, there were certain, you know, uh, fortuitous, serendipitous instances where, you know, your daughter is a, an investment banker and your son happens to be a photographer and, and Becky herself happens to be a copyright attorney. But those are all professionals that, that, that could be hired conceivably by someone, by a group of more layman people. 
I think it really oh, just sort of illustrates this need for that network. And, you know, it takes a village to make something like this happen. And, and if you silo yourself off from other professionals because you're afraid of them trying to you know, horn in on your action, then something like this can be, you know, near impossible to pull off. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. It's one of the reasons why I joined Hightower, because when I went to one of my first meetings to just interview other advisors, I found the most engaging, collaborative, sharing group of professionals, and I knew that would be my home. Yeah, it really is, um, you know, finding a place where you're, where you're happy and you feel supported is, is you know, as important for an advisor as it is for a client. Um, Absolutely. You know, that's about, you know, unfortunately, all the time that we have for today, Barbara. But I, I'd like to you know, thank you for coming on and sharing this amazing story, which I think, you know, has relevance for anyone, uh, you know, who's inheriting collectibles or finding something in their grandfather's attic. It doesn't necessarily have to be an entire art collection that ends up in a museum. I think there's lessons um, from your story that can be applied to, you know, even very small items that you just want to take correct care of and honor and, and consider correctly. So you know, thank you for sharing your story and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I am collaborative, so if anyone wants to reach out, I'm available. <laughs> thank you, David. And for our audience, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.